This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. This week, we're bringing you the key diabetes-related news from the European Society of Cardiology Congress, which took place last week. We'll start with a summary of relevant clinical studies and guideline updates, and we'll then join Professor Steve Bain to unpack what this news means for clinical practice. If you're already familiar with the diabetes news from the ESC Congress, please do feel free to skip ahead to the expert interview. ESC took place in Paris this year and was attended by 33,000 healthcare professionals. One of the most talked about topics at ESC was the implications of recent data for SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. This has led to significant changes to the guidelines on their use, as well as the presentation of a standout study on the effects of SGLT2 inhibitors on heart failure outcomes. Many of the presentations we attended were opened with the remarks that this is the most exciting time for diabetes research since the discovery of insulin. Let's start with the much-discussed results of DAPA-HF. This study was initiated on the basis that we knew SGLT2 inhibitors reduced the risk of hospitalisation for heart failure in type 2 diabetes. However, would this effect be seen in patients who already had heart failure regardless of whether they had diabetes? The trial included patients with and without diabetes with confirmed heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HF-REF, and renal function above 30 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared. In the composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, hospitalization for heart failure, or urgent heart failure visit, the trial showed a hazard ratio of 0.74 for dapagliflozin compared to placebo at a very high degree of statistical significance. That is, a p-value of 0.00001, a standout result which saw a round of applause in the auditorium. So from this, we know that dapagliflozin could offer a new approach to treating heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and is likely to lead to this class being considered a cardiology medicine in its own right. Another key highlight was the publication of the 2019 ESC guidelines on diabetes, which were developed in collaboration with the EASD. The big news here was the reclassification of metformin as second-line therapy in type 2 diabetes in favour of a first-line SGLT2 inhibitor or GLP-1 receptor agonists for patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or high cardiovascular risk. This is based on the positive cardiovascular outcome trial results across these classes with the views that offering these medicines to high-risk patients earlier will lead to greater risk reduction. In addition, saxagliptin is now not recommended in patients with type 2 diabetes under high risk of heart failure due to results from the SABRE-TIMI-53 study. To determine cardiovascular risk level of patients with diabetes, specific cardiovascular risk categories have been included in these guidelines. Patients in the very high risk group, meaning they have a 10-year risk of death from cardiovascular disease of more than 10%, include those with one of the following criteria. Established cardiovascular disease, target organ damage, three or more major risk factors, or those who have had type 1 diabetes for more than 20 years. Most other patients fall under the high-risk category, that is, a 10-year risk of cardiovascular death of between 5 and 10%. These are patients who have had diabetes for 10 years or more without target organ damage but at least one other risk factor, such as hypertension, smoking, or obesity. All other patients are considered moderate risk. As the group noted, there is no such thing as a low-risk patient with diabetes. Moving on to blood pressure targets. 
whereas originally the target for all patients was below 140 over 85 millimetres of mercury, an individualised approach with lower targets across the board is now recommended. This is influenced by age, treatment tolerance and multimorbidity. For those aged 65 years or older, a systolic target of between 130 and 139 is recommended. A target between 120 and 130 may also be considered if treatment is well tolerated or for those at high risk of cerebrovascular events or diabetic kidney disease. The the recommendation for diastolic blood pressure is below 80 but no lower than 70 millimetres of mercury. The recommended targets for LDL cholesterol in type 2 diabetes have also been lowered from 1.8 to 1.4 millimoles per litre for those at very high risk and from 2.5 to 1.8 for high-risk patients. A target of below 2.5 millimoles per litre for patients at moderate risk have also been recommended. To achieve this, it is recommended for patients to receive statins, followed by azetamibe, second line, or if not tolerated. PCSK9 inhibitors have also been recommended in patients not reaching targets with a combination of maximum statin dose and azetamibe. Statins may now also be considered for asymptomatic patients with type 1 diabetes who are over 30 years old, but not recommended in women of childbearing potential due to potential teratogenic effects. More widely, these guidelines reflect a shifting attitude towards a more individualized approach to treating diabetes and its cardiovascular comorbidities. On the subject of cholesterol, the importance of lowering LDL cholesterol was reiterated in the results of a study by Brian Ferentz and colleagues on the combined effects of lowering both LDL cholesterol and systolic blood pressure on lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease. It was found that the effects of these factors are independent, additive and dose-dependent, with any combination of lowering these factors having a proportionate risk reduction for cardiovascular disease. It was also suggested that the effects of lowering these factors are determined by both magnitude and duration of exposure, with a sustained reduction of a millimole per litre of LDL cholesterol and 10 millimetres of mercury systolic blood pressure associated with an 80% lower lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease. Other trials presented at ESC discussed strategies in other populations, for example Themis and Themis PPI, which recruited patients with type 2 diabetes and stable coronary artery disease, which is now known as chronic coronary syndrome according to the new guidelines. The study investigated the effect of the antiplatelet drug dicagrelor versus placebo, in addition to low-dose aspirin, and showed a hazard ratio of 0.9 for the dicagrelor group in its primary composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction and stroke, although a subgroup analysis showed this effect was only seen in those with a history of percutaneous coronary intervention. The ticagrelor group also had an increased rate of major bleeding. This is a lot of new information to process. To place the new recommendations into clinical context, we join Professor Steve Bain over the phone. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Bain. So perhaps the biggest difference in the 2019 ESC guidelines is that they recommend an SGLT2 inhibitor or GLP-1 receptor agonist as first-line therapy over metformin in people considered at high or very high cardiovascular risk. How do you see clinical practice changing to implement this guidance? So I think it's not unreasonable to go for either SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists as first-line therapy, since these are the classes of agents where we have 
definite evidence of superiority in terms of cardiovascular outcomes uh, versus other glucose-lowering agents. And I know that the cardiology view is that metformin, even though it has a reputation for being of cardiovascular and indeed all-cause mortality benefit, that's based on very small numbers of data from the UK PDS subgroup analysis many years ago and has never been subjected to the same rigor that the newer agents have been. So cardiologists, I think, would argue that if you put people onto metformin first and then wait for that not to achieve glycemic targets or for the effect of the metformin to wane, you're potentially missing out on several months or even years of prescribing a treatment that is of known benefit. And so it's a very strong cardiological view that you should avoid that that period of inactivity and go straight to the drugs with the with the known benefit. In terms of how that will impact on clinical care, I think in those uh, healthcare systems where cardiologists are involved in diagnosing people with type 2 diabetes, perhaps in the setting of an acute coronary syndrome, and then initiating therapy, I'm sure it could translate into a change quite quickly. However, in the routine management of type 2 diabetes, where people have been uh, diagnosed in primary care and then treatment has been initiated there, I suspect it will be a long, long time before the primacy of metformin, which is currently at the top of all of the other guidelines, is challenged. There is, of course, the issue of cost. Uh, metformin has been around for a long time, and so the majority of standard versions of metformin are extremely cheap, and even the slow-release versions of metformin, which are better tolerated, are still much less expensive than either the oral SGLT2 inhibitors or, conversely, the more expensive uh, injectable GLP-1 receptor agonists. So uh, clinical practice may change, but uh, there is an inertia about diabetes clinical practice, and I suggest it will be highly prevalent in this area. Thank you very much. Uh, next question. The same algorithm also recommends second-line metformin rather than moving to a combination of an SGLT2 inhibitor or GLP-1 receptor agonist. Why do you think this is, and would there be any role for the combination at third line? So I think it's, it's slightly odd that having accepted in those patients who are at very high risk of cardiovascular disease or indeed high risk of cardiovascular disease, that there would be a choice between an SGLT2 inhibitor and a GLP-1 receptor agonist, according to this new ESC guideline. And yet, when one or other of those classes has not been successful, I assume either in terms of tolerability or in achieving the target HbA1c, why you would then go to metformin rather than one of the uh, a member of the other class seems slightly bizarre. Uh, I'm not aware of any evidence base that would support um, that uh, mode of action or that um, algorithm, although equally there's no uh, evidence currently that using SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists has a beneficial impact on the cardiovascular endpoints. We certainly know that the two drugs have a complementary mechanism of action, and if you ask members of the two classes together, you'll get additional HbA1c reduction, you'll get additional weight gain and probably additional uh, blood pressure lowering. So we know they work well together, but we don't actually have the evidence that they will 
both uh, enhance the cardiovascular uh, benefits seen with the with the other class. So why would uh, ESC do this? Um, I don't really know, but I guess one reason could be cost that um, we, we accept that metformin is the cheapest and I guess most cost-effective uh, drug for initial treatment of diabetes. And if the guideline is recommending going for a more expensive version, then I guess there would be even more pushback if the second line therapy was another expensive class of drugs. So perhaps it's a cost thing and maybe that is making the, the guideline writers feel that they're more likely to get buy-in to the guideline if they do it in this way. But it does seem a slightly odd uh, recommendation to give. Thank you for your guidance. Finally, these guidelines go on to recommend more stringent lipid and blood pressure targets, with the ideal patient achieving a systolic blood pressure of 120 to 130 millimeters of mercury and an LDL cholesterol level below 1.4 millimoles per litre. How would you recommend achieving such targets in your patients? So the, I think if we deal with them separately, um, systolic blood pressure of 120 to 130, so this is a further lowering of blood pressure since most guidelines at the moment would re recommend a sort of default 140 systolic uh, blood pressure for patients at lower risk and for those with established complications, be they cardiovascular or small vessel, then dropping that systolic target down to 130. So this guideline is recommending pushing it lower. And this is interesting because the Accord blood pressure trial which went for a tight versus a non-tight or less tight uh, systolic blood pressure in people with type 2 diabetes didn't show any benefit uh, in those patients who achieved a systolic of 135 versus those with a systolic of 120. So it's uh, interesting that they should be pushing for this. Having said that, um, I guess the, the issue here is that blood pressure lowering is feasible with the medication that we've got and also they are not advocating this, le this level of target in patients over uh, who are getting older so those over 65 years for example so for the majority of people with type 2 diabetes I guess the, the target will remain much the same as it has been and we're looking at the, the younger cohort of patients I think, I think in the guideline they do accept that the level of evidence to support this um, is actually more from meta-analyses of studies rather than any big trials that have shown a benefit of the, the lower target. If we go for LDL cholesterol, um, again, the level of ed evidence that's quoted for this uh, level of 1.4 millimoles per litre is not particularly strong. Um, and I think the 1.8 target, which was previously there for people with type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease and the 2.5 for those without uh, cardiovascular disease have got a stronger evidence base. However, in real life practice, achieving LDL targets is much easier than achieving blood pressure targets and indeed much, much easier than achieving HbA1c targets. So I guess what this will point to is for those who take on this lower level, it will be in, in a sort of uh, up titration, either of the dose of the statin that's currently being used or of the potency of the statin. So moving from Simva to Atorva up to Resuva, statin more frequently in patients with type 2 diabetes. 
So I think the lipid target will be the one that is more easily adopted. Blood pressure target, I think those of us in clinical practice will be wary about the possibility of um, symptomatic uh, postural hypertension in many of many of our patients. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Bain. This brings us to the end of today's session. To summarise, new guidelines recommend earlier uptake of cardioprotective drugs, ideally even first line in newly diagnosed high-risk patients with type 2 diabetes. These guidelines also recommend comprehensive individualised reduction of blood pressure and lipids, as even a reduction of 1 millimole per litre of cholesterol and 10 millimetres of mercury of systolic blood pressure translate to an 80% reduction in lifetime cardiovascular risk. If you'd like to hear more from us on the latest developments in diabetes, you can subscribe to the podcast across all major apps or stream individual episodes from our website. If you found this episode useful, please leave us a review or tweet us at at DKIPractice. You can also access our free accredited CME content at knowledgeinpractice.eu. Thank you for listening. And thank you for joining us. If you have any questions for our experts or if you want to share your own clinical experience, join the discussion online using the hashtag DKIPESC on Twitter. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and we'll see you next episode.